quantum computing fundamentally is the best way to process information based on the laws of physics as we know them. I had constructed what I thought of as the generalization of the universal Turing machine. Can an astonishingly powerful new realm of computation be found within the quantum world? Will researchers ever realize the goal of what they call quantum supremacy? And what would it mean for our society if they did? From its fundamental building blocks to the ultimate goal of a truly universal quantum computer, join me, Oxford Professor of Philosophy Peter Millikan, as I explore this and many other questions on the Future Makers podcast. Available today from wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, but we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech, Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have uh, Louis Metzger. He's the Chief Scientific Officer of Tierra, Biosense, uh, Tierra Biosciences, recently renamed from Synvitrobio. Maybe possibly the rename was that this name is a lot easier to say and better. But uh, Louis, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, very well. Thanks for having me, Rich. Um, yeah, Synvitro Bio was a difficult name because uh, people always mixed up the syllables. Uh, and it would be mm-hmm. the vitro like bio and, and so on. So uh, we rebranded as Tierra uh, and uh, uh, for a number of different reasons that I can discuss later. Um, but we thought it was a, an easier to remember and sort of a cleaner name. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Too. Well, tell me about uh, Tierra. What's the premise of the company? So many historically, many um, chemicals and uh, enzymes that are used for various biotechnology purposes, uh, you know, whether it be, um, you know, insecticides and agriculture tech, ag tech, or uh, even, you know, drug-like molecules uh, that are natural products uh, that are used in biopharma, uh, they've often been produced uh, by expressing them in host organisms, or more specifically, expressing enzymes that catalyze the production of uh, useful or interesting uh, uh, chemical products, uh, and they've been done in cells. So yeast, E. coli are, are common uh, common host organisms. Uh, uh, some types of plant cells, 
uh, isolated human cells and, and, and so forth. Um, but uh, one limitation of that sort of bioproduction and especially the prospecting uh, for new biochemistry uh, is that uh, when you make a compound in an E. coli or yeast cell or the enzymes that catalyze the uh, production of that compound, uh, and those enzymes or that compound are toxic to the host cell, uh, it dies, or it, it finds a way not to produce uh, the enzymes that you want it to produce, and thus you don't find what you're looking for. And so cells really regulate themselves uh, uh, quite well because they've evolved to do that. And it, it puts a limitation on what types of proteins one can express and what type of chemicals one can find in uh, host systems that we're used to working with, the living organisms that produce what we want them to. And so uh, Tira Biosciences uh, is really founded on the basis of grinding up cells, preserving the biochemistry that those cells do, specifically those cells' ability to uh, take DNA um, and make a message from it, uh, which is RNA, and then take that RNA and produce proteins. Uh, proteins uh, can be products of their own that are used for specific purposes, or they can be proteins that are also enzymes. So enzymes are proteins that catalyze chemistry. Uh, and um, uh, we find that uh, our thesis is that we can express proteins in these cell-free systems that are derived from living cells, but are not in fact living. And we can uncover proteins and uh, products of, of enzymatic biosynthetic pathways that would normally be toxic to the host. So what we're really doing is we're we're trying to uncover this uh, uh, chemical dark matter, as it were, that is encoded by the genomes of of all the organisms in nature, but that humans haven't been able to easily produce or access in host cells because of toxicity to the cell. So in, in a nutshell, that's that's what we're aiming to do, and uh, that's what we think uh, and have some evidence uh, is is a unique uh, role for this cell-free expression technology. Well, you know, it's, I was reading some of the notes. Yeah. This would be a funny example, but if you had a whole bunch of cells, could you uh, process them and, and extract like the ribosomes and make like ribosome juice or something or mitochondria juice where you had, you know, you, you extracted just the mitochondria from, you know, several million cells and put them all together and see what you saw or, you know, the ribosomes. And are you able to isolate, for instance, you know, specific organelles from a population of cells or other features intact? Uh, yes, we definitely are. And uh, the, the process for doing that, for isolating um, uh, uh, organelles, uh, is, is nothing that we invented. Uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's been done for many years uh, for different types of organelles and different types of cells. And uh, we've, uh, we've found isolation of specific organelles uh, quite useful. Uh, and, you know, for instance, um, uh, you know, one can isolate bacterial ribosomes in case those are limiting in, say, a bacterial cell-free system. And for eukaryotic cell types uh, that we're interested in, uh, we certainly uh, can isolate uh, uh, you know, quantities of subcellular um, organelles that that have useful properties in these cell-free systems. And, uh, you know, one can imagine uh, what those those might be, uh, especially from uh, an energy regeneration standpoint. I have a weird question. Have, have we ever tried to isolate parts of a cell and see if they, quote-unquote, live, if we can sustain them, feed them, and keep them going? Has anyone tried to do that? Well, 
it, in essence, that is what we do. Uh, it's it, it, it it's a bit different if you compare that process for uh, say bacteria uh, versus um, eukaryotic cells. Uh, you know, given you know the higher level of complexity of eukaryotic cells. Uh, but if you if you start with the bacterial lysate and and think about you know what it's doing, uh, it has everything it needs uh, in, in the cytosol uh, to you know do transcription of DNA and then translation of DNA with the ribosomes uh, and then chaperones uh, to help uh, the folding of proteins uh, and you know various the various cofactors that you need. Uh, uh, to you know, power the the biosynthetic pathways to do all of this. Uh, so we basically preserve uh, the ability to convert DNA uh, to protein. Uh, whether that's really life, uh, it you know, it's not. It's self-sustaining, but not self-replicating. And I think that maybe that's that's the fine difference. Uh, and 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 there's no homeostatic uh, feedback. So that is to say. Uh, you know, the cells can't repress or the cell lysates can't repress the expression of something that's toxic to them because, you know, by breaking them open, we removed, uh, uh, you know, much, but certainly not all of the biochemistry. And particularly, we preserved, you know, this transcription and translational biochemistry uh, that we really want. Uh, and you know, in eukaryotic cells, uh, uh, it's much the same, uh, although what that practically looks like um, is much more dependent upon what system we're working with. And you know, even among the bacteria uh, that we've studied uh, and, and made cell-free lysates out of and, and others uh, that have been reported in the literature, uh, one sees a wide variety of behavior, but uh, at its essence, these systems work well when they can perform transcription and translation. And sometimes you can separate those two steps. Sometimes you can do them all in one pot, uh, but, um, it's almost alive, but not quite, I guess, is, is how I'd think about it. So what are some of the things you're trying to elucidate by, uh, you know, by, I guess, isolating certain parts of, uh, you know, bacterial cells? So, so we're, we're really trying to make things that a bacterium or uh, a eukaryotic cell uh, would not want to make if it was, if it was fully self-regulating, if it was alive. Uh, and, uh, so one category of these things that we're really interested in and that we've had, uh, I think, uh, a significant amount of success with uh, are uh, enzymes that do useful biochemistry. So biochemistry that would be helpful if one was going to um, use green chemistry to do some industrial process to make some valuable uh, molecule or one step in the synthesis maybe of that molecule might be best catalyzed by an enzyme that you find in nature. The problem is, if you're going to test those enzymes, you have to, you know, uh, clone them, expression clone them in a way that you can put them into your host organism. So, say it's an E. coli or a living E. coli or a yeast, and then make that enzyme and break open the E. coli or yeast uh, or, or you know other type of, of cell uh, and analyze uh, that lysate for whether it, it contains an enzyme that you tried to express and if that enzyme does what it's supposed to. Our system is much, much faster and able to cover more ground because the cells are already broken open. Uh, we just use lysates, but they can allow us to quickly put in genes uh, uh, in, in expression cassettes and ask, 
you know, can we make uh, a gene that might have an industrial use, a gene product that might have an industrial use? Uh, and, uh, you know, can we make many variants of that? So we can print these open reactions and ask very quickly, you know, from this panel of, of, of genes that putatively encode an enzyme that does something useful, you know, which of those variants of that enzyme express? Uh, and uh, then we can test, uh, or our, our clients can test, uh, those, those produced enzymes for the ability to do, uh, catalyze some very particular and useful chemistry. And the key point, I think, is that we've been able to express enzymes that are really toxic uh, to most host cells. Uh, and with these cell-free systems, we can express them. Uh, they catalyze the chemistry that one would expect them to. And this is a really powerful discovery tool uh, for these, these, these types of enzymes. So that's, that's one application. Another application that we're, we're excited about is that if you think about um, how you could quickly test different panels of enzymes, uh, ability to catalyze, for instance, a small molecule that might be of uh, you know, biotherapeutic uh, usefulness, uh, you know, certain types of natural products, for instance, that uh, nature via enzymes uh, can catalyze uh, the formation of very easily, but humans working in a fume hood have much more difficulty making. And so these are often right, right. molecules with, with handedness and shape. Uh, and uh, so we think that our pathway is, or our, our platform is really well set up uh, to querying whether these biosynthetic clusters make what we're interested in, because since these are open systems, uh, the molecular biology is much easier than, say, expressing uh, um, a series of genes all together in a living cell. So we can we can take linear constructs uh, of you know single genes and pile them all into a single reaction. And you know, do various combinations of them, uh, and and find out in what conditions and with what orthologs of some of the enzymes we can make an interesting natural product. So there, there's sort of two branches here. There's this functional genomics branch for discovery of enzymes that are hard to express in living cells, and on the other hand, there's this branch of small molecule discovery uh, and uh, you know, sort of rapid prototyping of biosynthetic pathways. And because these are open systems, we can also put in unnatural substrates. So small molecules that would normally be hard to get into a cell uh, and thus have enzymes made in that cell you know, uh, acting upon those substrates, we can feed those into our tiny reactions and their open systems. And so we can make unnatural natural products uh, in this manner. And so I think it opens up uh, the opportunity for uh, the ability to, you know, cover cover interesting corners of chemical space. So some of the um, the things that make it difficult to do this with the whole cell is what homeostatic drive of the cell, which I guess includes keeping toxicity at a at a minimum. <clears throat> you know, the the properties of a molecule coming through the membrane or not coming through and migrating to the right spots, and uh, maybe exactly. I don't know if there are any, but defense mechanisms of the cell itself. Maybe there's internal ones, certainly external. Um, I guess there's a lot of factors that uh, that make this another viable way to uh, to look at reactions. Precisely, and and I think it's 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 a it's a useful. The platform is a useful tool um, to add to the many tools that uh, the whole field of you know uh, biological engineering or synthetic biology 
uh, whichever one wants to call it, has built. So I think that uh, it, it is an additional tool that is complementary to uh, the really beautiful work being done by companies such as Zymergen and Ginkgo and Amaris uh, and uh, Hexagon Bio, uh, Lodo Therapeutics uh, and others uh, to really start uh, prospecting in essentially the genome of the world of like all sequenced organisms uh, for useful biosynthetic pathways that allow us to you know, make chemicals in a way that uh, humans in the fume hood can't make. And I, I think we're going to discover many, many useful uh, things you know, using these sorts of platforms. And the cell-free platform enables uh, a certain type of discovery that in-cell platforms don't. Uh, cellular platforms, of course, are much more scalable uh, immediately if one wants to say, okay, you know, we have a cell that produces uh, uh, something that we want because we've, we've you know, expression cloned a whole pathway uh, into it. You know, one can then grow up and, and that cell on, you know, in huge quantities and, and extract the product. And, and that's what uh, you know, Zymogen and Ginkgo and, and, and other companies like that are doing. And what Tira Biosciences is doing is we're saying, look, uh, we're not really at this point in you know, a large cell-free uh, um, scale-up production system. We're, we have this discovery platform. So we can help you find orthologs of enzymes really quickly uh, that you might not be able to find otherwise. And then we can take those high-value findings and then you know, engineer those more uh, you know, if, we, if we need to scale them up. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we're taking a longer view of can we use this process to really discover libraries of, of new chemical matter uh, that would be useful for agriculture tech or uh, biotherapeutic screening. And uh, with something I discovered when I, I worked at Novartis Pharma uh, uh, in its infectious diseases division is that uh, two or three million compounds in uh, small molecule libraries in, in pharma uh, are maybe not as diverse uh, as one would want them to be. So I think that there's a place for discovering uh, uh, natural product-inspired small molecules, uh, ones that are enriched in chiral centers and ones that are, are often uh, made enzymatically uh, by nature. And so uh, I, I think our platform you know, fits into sort of the discovery of, of enzymes and the discovery of diverse uh, uh, chemical matter uh, in the spectrum of what's going on uh, in uh, biological engineering. Right. So have you seen any companies that have made like a ribosome farm or a mitochondria farm? They've taken, you know, tens of thousands of these organelles and put them in like one gigantic cytosol bath and had them operate, kept them alive, and had them, uh, you know, churn out molecules or process molecules? Well, uh, it, it probably has been done uh, and uh, is certainly doable. Uh, I think a lot of uh, that sort of work is often falls into the category of different companies' trade secrets. But uh, I can point, you know, one can point to a number of, of, of companies uh, in the cell-free uh, space uh, that, it must do something of the sort in order to scale uh, their cell pre-production of interesting molecules. And a good example would be Sutro uh, Therapeutics, and they do uh, large-scale in vitro uh, production of uh, antibodies. Uh, and uh, for a number of reasons, 
uh, that may be an advantageous way to make them uh, as opposed to cell culture. So uh, I would guess uh, that Sutro uh, probably has uh, a very robust uh, uh, energy regeneration system and you know, the, probably the use of organelles. Uh, and, and I think everyone who's working in uh, the cell-free space is thinking about you know what are what are ways that one could cleverly uh, you know fractionate cell lysates and and do clever supplementation of those lysates and and even mix and match them so there there can be components of 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 one uh, cell free system that uh, might be good for instance for folding your your protein of interest or maybe installing uh, post translational modifications so that's chemistry that's put onto a protein uh, that's in addition to just the amino acids that are normally incorporated. Uh, and so there's, there's all this, there's this combinatorial, large set of combinatorial possibilities uh, that makes the field really exciting because it's an open system. So we can, we can supplement it uh, as we wish. You know, extra ribosomes, you know, we can do that. Uh, organelles from a different cell type than the one that we're primarily using to drive our cell-free system. Yeah, that, that can sometimes uh, be doable. So uh, I think there's much to do and much to learn in this space. Hmm. Um, interesting. With, uh, well, you have any, I, I don't, well, I don't want you to give any way trade secrets or anything, obviously, but are there any specific examples of molecules you've been able to process or create uh, using your system? Or are you developing more just the platform of how to do it, and it's for other companies to do specific uh, applications of it. So, so we uh, we have a number of uh, internal projects uh, that uh, will probably be uh, proof of concept projects uh, for our Series A fundraising round, and I can't really talk about those. However, uh, the company uh, for for some years now uh, has done a number of. Uh, uh, contracts uh, and grant uh, work for uh, federal agencies and uh, for uh, NGOs uh, and and so forth. And I think one example that I can can give that's uh, um, you know not public yet, but we will be publicly reporting it because we're required to as a condition of the uh, of the grant uh, is that uh, we we're doing some work uh, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, in uh, the enzymatic synthesis of uh, a natural product uh, that's uh, used in the treatment of malaria. And uh, in particular, there's one enzyme, there's a cytochrome P450 that uh, is key to catalyzing uh, the production of this molecule, but uh, it has never been reported to be expressed uh, in, for instance, E. coli. And uh, one reason uh, that we found out uh, that was is because it's so toxic to E. coli uh, that uh, the E. coli put in stop codons uh, in the open reading frame. You just, you know, this, this protein is so toxic that you can't even expression clone it. But we've been able to make uh, variants of this protein, and it's a, it's a plant protein, uh, in uh, some of our different uh, cell-free systems uh, and, and show that it can be produced uh, uh, at high levels, and it has uh, the expected activity. And we think this is pretty exciting uh, because it's an enzyme that I think people have wanted to work with uh, uh, historically and have not been able to, probably because of its toxicity to many hosts. Uh, but the other thing that's neat about it is 
it, as a cytochrome P450, it has a heme group uh, that has to be installed. And uh, the lysate in which we're producing the cytochrome P450 uh, preserves the ability to synthesize heme uh, and install it uh, in uh, the cytochrome P450 enzyme that, that, that requires it as a, essentially as a post-translational modification. Uh, so this is really exciting. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, when we express this protein, which, which ends up having a reddish color, uh, as many cytochrome B450s do, uh, one can watch uh, the cell-free reaction go from sort of a, a clear or light yellow color, which you know, most of our systems are, uh, to increasingly pinkish orange as it makes more and more of the cytochrome P450. So it's, uh, you know, so we, so we can spectra, spectrophotometrically uh, follow the production of that one anyway. And so that's the sort of thing that really excites us. Uh, I can also mention, though I can't discuss uh, the particulars of the project, that uh, we recently uh, did a multi-phase project uh, for a large uh, um, chemical tech slash ag tech company, a Fortune 50 company. And uh, they gave us uh, a panel of very difficult to express proteins. And uh, these were of interest to them for a number of, of downstream applications. And uh, we were able to uh, express uh, uh, many of this panel. And unbeknownst to us, a number of other companies uh, were asked to express the similar uh, collection of this you know, difficult to express proteins. And ours was by far and away uh, the most productive system. So we had the most uh, proteins that had the correct function uh, in the analysis of our, our client. So we're really excited mm -hmm. about that. And it gives us confidence that we can uncover things that are difficult to express in cells by doing them with these cell-free systems. So uh, uh, that was more of a, a functional genomics application. Uh, but the details of that, uh, I'm obliged to keep uh, under wraps, right. but uh, it's exciting. You know, I've heard of um, organ on the chip systems and even interlinking certain organs on chips. What about an organelle on a chip system? Has anyone conceived of that where you take certain cellular functions and try to, you know, uh, recreate them on a chip and maybe interlink one or two of them or three of them and see if you can uh, use that as a proxy for generating um, or at least seeing what happens and why certain uh, compounds can't be made by the cell or can be made by the cell? So, so this is a really good question. And again, these sorts of things have been done uh, by a number of groups in academia and industry historically, maybe not explicitly thinking of recreating the entirety of a cellular function on a chip, uh, but more from the perspective of building a really complex uh, biochemical assay on a chip. Uh, which inevitably involves you know, the assembly of protein, you know, complex protein complexes, uh, you know, to do specific biochemistry uh, for screening purposes. And uh, you know, one thing, one sort of example of this use that comes to mind is uh, there. There's been a number of work, a number of good works over the years on uh, uh, producing protein arrays on chips. And so, you know, if for instance you wanted to produce every variant of, say, uh, a human drug target uh, for which there were many variants and, and the biochemical differences in these variants uh, affected how that drug target, say, bound a drug-like molecule that was known to bind to it and affect its function. You know, one way to do this is you know, print DNA on a chip and then 
use in vitro transcription translation reactions uh, to produce the proteins that that DNA encodes all in one well, uh, and then wash away, you know, conjugate that protein uh, to the chip surface in some way or another. Uh, and there's many options for doing so. Wash away the in vitro, the cell-free transcription translation reaction, and now you have your protein or protein complex variant on a chip. And so certainly, you know, one can one could elaborate upon that even further, uh, and you know, make very complex, uh, you know, proteinaceous local environments, uh, um, you know, in a in a chip conjugated way. And certainly, that's that's an, another use uh, uh, of our technology that we're pursuing, uh, because I mentioned that some of our we have a number of internal proof of concept projects. Uh, some of those are in the area of uh, biotherapeutic discovery, uh, or at least identification of uh, classes of chemical matter that can be made enzymatically but are hard to make in the fume hood. And if we're going to make panels of small molecules, uh, it's also helpful to make panels of targets against which to test those small molecules binding uh, or if they're enzyme inhibition. And so uh, in vitro transcription translation reactions are really ideal for making targets on a chip. Uh, and so uh, so that so you you put your finger on another application uh, that we're we're you know, we've piloted and uh, uh, we're really uh, excited about because it's directly useful to us uh, in, in our proof of, proof of concept studies. Uh, longer term, I think it could be directly useful uh, to especially the biotherapeutic discovery world uh, because one of the one of the uh, difficult parts of an early discovery pipeline. In, in any sort of therapeutic discovery is the in vitro treatment of the target. So uh, if, you're, if you're screening a, a library of small molecules uh, or if you're panning for uh, an antibody against a particular target, you need to have a version of that target or versions of that target that behave well in your assay or are amenable uh, uh, to you know, downstream characterization. And traditionally, proteins have been expressed, uh, and I did quite a bit of work uh, in protein expression when I was at Novartis, uh, in making these drug targets uh, in a way that, that they were well-behaved. But again, you have to expression clone them uh, in living cells, grow up those cells, slice them, isolate and characterize your, your protein target of interest. Uh, we think that we can cover a lot more ground uh, testing many, many constructs of valuable targets using cell-free transcription translation. And again, this has been done uh, uh, historically uh, you know, in some quarters, but uh, it's perhaps not as mainstream as, as one would imagine. And so the technology is there. It just needs to be applied. And I think we'll see more and more of that uh, in the future. Okay. Um, any surprises in uh, doing this processing of, of cells? You know, have you looked at for instance, the prevalence of certain compounds that are supposed to be within, you know, a particular type of bacterial cell and seen any outliers or have you seen any compounds that you didn't know were there? Well, we've certainly seen, um, we've seen the, uh, the preservation of pathways that we weren't sure, you know, biosynthetic pathways native to the host cell uh, that we weren't sure were still working after our treatment of the cells, uh, and, you know, and conversion of them from living cells into these uh, uh, you know, transcriptionally and translationally active cell-free lysates. 
And you know, one example uh, that I mentioned earlier uh, was in a given system, uh, the preservation of uh, the robust ability to make and install uh, heme uh, into cytochrome P450. That was that was a surprise uh, in the system in which we uh, uh, tested this. Uh, I think. Uh, We've done some metabolomics work, so looking at small molecule metabolites and how they change over time in these cell-free reactions, and that's guided us. Uh, and we've been surprised, I think, uh, by the determinants of the kinetics of these reactions. Um, some things were surprises, some things when we thought carefully about them and basic biochemistry made quite a bit of sense. Uh, I will say that uh, it seems like a simple system and can be described as a simple system, any, any cell-free system, but actually they're very complex. And uh, you know, every variable is important for making them reproducible. And so I think that you know, one, one thing that we found surprising and really required a great deal of engineering, uh, but in retrospect is not so surprising, is just how carefully we have to control um, the exact volumes of components that we add to these cell-free reactions and, uh, you know, and the methods that we use for doing the, that uh, uh, really have had to be carefully tested and calibrated so that we get consistent results. And so I think, you know, uh, chasing consistency in cell-free transcription and translation uh, is not as straightforward as it would seem uh, a priori because uh, you no longer have self-regulating cells. And so, uh, everything from reaction volume to, you know, uh, not surprisingly, oxygenation or lack thereof uh, to numerous other variables uh, have to be accounted for. And so we've spent a, a great deal of time uh, you know, engineering uh, 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 consistency in our cell free transcription and translation work. And it's it's not a finished process, but it's it's getting uh, getting more and more ro robust uh, with, with less variance uh, from run to run that we do uh, when we express test proteins. So I'd say uh, you know, the bio, the engineering aspect uh, and, and the automation and the data handling aspects have also been maybe not surprises, but definitely something that have required uh, as much investment as we had suspected and probably now even more. Okay. Well, very good. What, what do you uh, expect? may happen what are some milestones for the company and for you over the next year or two so we we have a we have a number of different milestones uh in in different categories uh so we have a functional genomics uh arm or cluster of projects in the functional genomics space and this is uh yeah, the discovery of useful enzymes and uh we have um some contracts uh with with uh, large uh, chemical tech and ag tech companies uh, for which uh, we've provided deliverables, but uh, we're you know, continuing on to uh, negotiate next phases of those contracts. And uh, of course, on others, we're waiting back to hear uh, how our our system worked in in their hands, uh, and you know, did the enzymes that we produced were they functional or interesting? And so I think as we get more and more of those data, uh, we'll have an interesting case to make about uh, this, our platform as a valuable functional genomics platform. And I, I think that that might look like uh, continued and expanded partnerships uh, with the people uh, uh, with whom we're already working and, uh, and probably some other uh, collaborations uh, uh, that, 
are in discussion now. At the same time, uh, our purely in-house uh, uh, set of uh, proof of concept projects uh, are ongoing, and we'd like to have uh, a very clear readout on one of our key uh, small molecule discovery proof of concept projects uh, this autumn. And so we'd be like, we'd like to end up end 2019 with uh, a clear uh, proof of concept or two in uh, built around using our system to discover uh, difficult to synthesize natural products, uh, uh, small molecules on one hand, on the other hand, uh, have shown traction in the functional genomics space, uh, helping to turbocharge uh, uh, collaborators and, and customers uh, functional genomics uh, hunting, as it were. And so those are, those are the two things uh, that uh, we'd like to see uh, come to a point by the end of the year where we can, you know, early next year say, look, we have these proof of concepts now, you know, what, uh, you know, do we want to get into big joint research agreements uh, with partners? Uh, do we want to raise uh, a series A uh, based on, you know, internal data? Uh, you know, we'll see what, uh, uh, what, what the data and what the timing uh, uh, suggests we should do. So it, it's nice to have uh, a number of different options. And in addition to that, uh, we, you know, we have a number of grants and contracts uh, with you know, government and non-government uh, agencies, and uh, those provide revenue. And, and our delivery on those helps us build the case uh, for uh, moving more and more towards uh, um, building our own molecules in-house, our own molecular libraries, and uh, partnering with uh, private sector uh, collaborators. Okay, very good. And what's the best way for uh, folks to get in touch or to ask questions? So uh, they're welcome uh, to uh, visit our website, uh, tirabiosciences.com. Uh, certainly, uh, they're welcome to reach out to uh, Zach Sun, uh, the CEO and founder of the company. Uh, he's uh, reachable through the website and on LinkedIn. And certainly, uh, uh, listeners are welcome to contact me uh, via our website, via LinkedIn. Uh, my email is lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at tierrabiosciences.com. And I uh, certainly welcome inquiries and questions. Okay. Very good. Well, Lewis, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Rich. Really appreciate it. Nice talking with you. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. 
Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.